Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And people, that's a different that's a different song that's playing. Because as you know, I used to always come in with the Tyco drums, I believe, that I found years ago when I started this show at, in the studio at Indy 100 in uh, Burbank. Well, all of a sudden, I went on this morning. Last week, it was fine. And my drums were gone. So I shuffled. And this is the first thing that came up without people talking. So I'm looking for a song. I'll be, I'll be looking. I'm probably going to hit up my friend, who Rich, who plays drums. Say, give me a 45-second drum solo. But this was it today, people. This is my little Tyco drums. And uh, yeah. But anyway, enough of that. We have a great show today. My guest actually is in Nashville. And my guest is... Uh, very great music career. Just came out with a solo album a little while ago, and he's been rocking forever. My guest is Mark Slaughter. How you doing, Mark? Good. How are you? I'm good, man. It's just, uh, now what's the weather like in Nashville? Because we're in the midst of this crazy, we had crappy weather since I've been back, and we suddenly got this crazy heat wave, and it's like 95 degrees out. What's it like in Nashville right now? Uh, it's, it's, uh, let's see, what is the temperature? It is actually pretty nice right now. Well, it's about 90 right now so you know i'm from vegas so that's 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 fine for me (laughs) now you you were born in vegas and now when did you as a kid did you start to go see shows on the strip or or what got you into music were you always musical or what age did you figure this is what you wanted to do well i always loved music i i found myself parked in front of record players more than anything else and if i wasn't riding my bicycle i was in front of my record player and it was just kind of a you know it was even a thing that my parents if i behaved and did my chores i got a 45 at the end of the week so i guess it was something i was always driven towards and didn't even really think about it um but uh, just i just love music i mean it's just something that that drives me and it's a big major part of my life and has been since I was a kid. Now, when you were a little kid, what were some of your uh, 45s? Because we're around the same age. And I remember, and I hate to admit this, this my first two albums, I believe, were at Christmas, were The Partridge Family and Tom Jones' Greatest Hits. What were, what hey, were some man, of- nothing, wrong with the, nothing wrong with The Partridge Family. I love The Partridge Family. I thought it was a it was a good show. You know, it, uh, it, I, I actually liked The Partridge Family, but my first 45 was uh the sweet little willie okay was my first 45 that i bought um with my money you know in other words being a good kid and i got the money to do it um i had a couple of partridge family records you know i had three dog night loved them for some reason i just loved the songs and of course the beatles and the standard you know all the the things that were hip at the time and a lot of the Motown, Aretha Franklin, and that type of stuff was a big backbone of, of where I came from. And as I got older, it became, you know, Sabbath and all the other rock and roll teenage, you know, rebellious stuff that we, we all know and love. Now, when did you figure out that you had a voice and you could sing? And when did the, the musician side, I mean, you love music, so it would be, I mean, all of us, have, a lot of us love music as a kid. I found out at a very young age that... I have no musical talent, so it wasn't uh, even a choice for mine. But when did you start finding out you had a voice that you could sing, or when did you pick up your first guitar? Um, as far as singing, I sang ever since I was a little kid. I always sang along with records, so I, I've, I've always been singing. Um, as far as playing guitar, I started at 11 years old. So um, my sister went to Mexico and came back for Christmas and had this this 
Mexican uh, acoustic that the strings are probably inch off the the fretboard, and it was it it was really like impossible to play. And my my fifth grade teacher, the music teachers, were like, you know, they, I saw them doing chords, and I said, well, how do you do that? Like I asked a zillion questions, and they said, well, you just do this, and they've charted out a couple chords, and I came back you know, a week later with all those chords knocked out, like, oh my God, and you could play it on that thing. So then they told my dad that I should, you know, get a better guitar and and then it just kind of went from there. Um, I just kept playing and kept playing and learned all the folk stuff, you know, the folk picking and early uh, kind of the jazz side of things. You know, Las Vegas at that point was very jazz driven and, and, and pop driven because that's what was being played in the casinos. And it was the, um, you know, that's where music was. And, uh, I think that's what kind of made a big impression with me was being around those musicians and, and, uh, and, and the teachers and the kids who were, or the parents were in those bands. So, okay, so you were growing up around it, and you had friends, and you so you, you got access to it. Now, as you started playing guitar, when did you start bringing it up another level and saying, this is maybe something I want to do and maybe make a career out of? Or did that take a while? I think I think when I was 11 years old, I just thought, you know, this could be awesome because I just had, again, it's the love of it. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, that I really found on doing, you know, for instance, the, the, the new record that I, I came up with halfway there was in the mindset of being love with making a vinyl record and where I came from and what I grew up with, which is one side had these songs and one side had these songs and and it just took you someplace. And I think that's really where the mindset of this whole record was was that the music would take you and become a soundtrack and be a part of people's lives, including my own instead of just throwing out a bunch of songs, throwing out demos, doing half-baked recordings. I mean, it was there's a lot of painstaking thought and time that was put into this to make it right. Now, it's funny because you said it about albums, and I've talked to many of my guests about what it was like to buy an album, you know, uh, what it was like. It was that, with that whole production where you sat there and you'd, like we used to ride our bicycle. I still remember me and my friend, you know, getting Good. Elvis Costello Armed Forces and getting Tom Petty Refugee. And you rode your bike and you got the artwork. Now on your new album, Halfway Over There, the artwork is pretty uh, awesome. Who did that for you? And did you know what you wanted or did you say to this guy who did the artwork, here's what's going to happen. Here's what my album, my songs are about. Take, give me something. Um, it, it was, you know, I spoke to Tom over at EMP Label. And uh, we were talking about, uh, um, you know, about different uh, art and different ideas. And there was a gentleman who came up with the, the initial idea for, uh, for the, the concept of the record. And, and he said, I've got this buddy named Sam who is amazing. He did like, you know, Iron Maiden's records and Kiss and Rob Zombie and all that. And I go, cool, this is kind of what I was thinking. And the next thing you know... There's this photorealism of this of this this artwork that was just amazing, and uh, you know I can't draw a freaking stick, man. I mean, audibly I can get it all day long, but I can't artistically do anything like that. And I was just amazed. You know, he was a phenomenal artist, and that's kind of how it came to be. Now I want to go back to when you how you got to the 
you know, to your solo career, when you were at 11 and you said, this is what you want to do, you were fascinated, what was your path to joining bands? When was the first band that you really joined that you guys were, you know, not an 11-year-old band, you know, a band that was, you know, you were getting old, you were getting an older musical taste now. You said you were getting the Sabbath and all that stuff. When did you start deciding what direction your group would go into? I mean, what, when, how did that happen? There was a, you know, I started with the, again, at a young age, what you're saying is it, it, my first show was at a Jerry Lewis telethon uh, out in Las Vegas in the local uh, chapter out there. Um, and that was my first show that I did at, I think I was, 12 years old at that time and uh and then you know later on i i I basically started this band called excursion x-c-u-r-s-i-o-n and it became part of the comp which is the radio station there it was like the best compilation of the local bands there and i had a song on every one of those three records every year that they did that and, you know, I was, a, again, I think it was a songwriter first, guitar player second, and then singing was really just something that I just did and didn't think about. And, uh, which is kind of funny because I became known as a singer, but that's kind of how I've always looked at, always looked at it. Um, and then, you know, we, Excursion ended up, uh, after I graduated, 17 years old, we put out a record on Green World Distribution, which is where... Motley's first record came out and Rat's first record came out and I think there's about a thousand of those vinyls that are out there on the first pressing of that. There's probably about 3,500 to 4,000 vinyl out there of that record, which is called Skull Queen. And it was real kind of a heavier thing. Uh, it caught the, the eyes and ears of a gentleman named Mike Barney. I don't know if you know Mike Barney, but he discovered Ingbe Malmsteen and was was you know also you know Paul Gilbert and a lot of these you know it actually tried to hook Paul Gilbert and I up at, at a very early age, um, but I was starting to get uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, how should I put it there was a lot of uh, interest with Vinny at that time. But I auditioned for Icon. I auditioned. There was actually talk of me doing. Uh, uh, work with uh, Rudy Sarzo, Tommy Aldrich, and uh, Tony McAlpine, who had a band called Driver that they were putting together, and and Mike was trying to hook me up with that, but inevitably I put, I was a guitar teacher, I put my guitar down, and became just a singer, and I think Mike Varney was probably one of the first people who just said, you know, look, there's a million guitar players, but there's not many singers, you should just sing, and it was really interesting to me, because I thought, man, you know, I'm not Paul Gilbert by any means, but I'm a good guitar player. Right. And, uh, you know, again, it's just, you know, look at the reality out there. There's, you know, these absolute genius guitar players, Steve Vai, Paul Gilbert, you know, Satriani, et cetera. You know, I'm just the, the rock and roll everyday, you know, kind of a Sammy Hager guy in that side of it that I play guitar and I love to sing and I like to just freaking rock, you know. And uh, so, it, anyway, I ended up uh, singing for Vinnie Vincent for a couple of years. We opened up for Alice Cooper and Iron Maiden. My first tour was with Iron Maiden. Now, how old were you when that when that was taking place? Um, I was twenty-two. 
Now, what is that like? I mean, you're opening for Maiden, and even Alice Cooper, so you're playing big venues. I mean, it's it's such a young age. I mean, looking back, we don't, yeah. but you have, like, you know, you're you're a kid, and you're opening for, you know, both Alice Cooper and Iron Maiden are legends. What goes through your mind? Is it one of those things where you are young, so you have no fear, you don't worry? You know, because you're going to the stage, and you're going up first, and you got to, you know, pretty much kick some ass. I mean, what goes through right. a 20-year-old, 22-year-old kid's head when they're on, all of a sudden, they're going from playing in Vegas to playing, I mean, you're probably playing some pretty big places. Yeah, no, we were, it was Alice Cooper's comeback, is when he sobered up, and he was with uh, Kane Roberts at the time, Michael Wagner. Um, who I, uh, you know, produced that record, and he lives here in Nashville. It's kind of like a small little. Again, rock and roll is a small community. Everybody knows everybody. Whether you know, no matter what, we would have all known each other in one way or another. And uh, but I, my first show was with Alice Cooper, um, and we opened. Uh, I think my third show was Hell Night in Detroit, which is just literally where they burn their freaking place down i mean it's just crazy and uh you know and again it's it was it was crazy it was like you know eighteen thousand people again i put my guitar down all of a sudden i'm the singer with the microphone running around running around on a stage and opening for legendary alice cooper it was an amazing thing um and and i still look back on that and just go man how cool is that and i again i made some lifelong friends from alice's band you know kip wingers one of the players um paul taylor who played uh, keys and guitar for alice and also ken mary the drummer for alice at the time i mean we've all known each other you know many years now you know now, when you were and you were in that band, now you're doing originals. What do you write about when you're 17, 18, 19, 20? I mean, what were your, where were you getting your song lyrics from? Um, interesting. It was just kind of, uh, you know, I think it was uh, again. It's kind of the love of life and, and you know relationships and and uh, uh, you know it was like we had this kind of a horror type thing of, of Mouthful of Steel was the name of a of, the, of our first kind of a heavy metal. I mean, it was like real heavy metal at that time. So we had the song called Mouthful of Steel. How rock and roll is that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just, it, it was what it was. You know, we were just kind of, we were adolescents writing adolescent lyrics, you know? It's all good. Now, now what happened with uh, Finney's group? How did you end up becoming deformed slaughter? Um, well, you know, we did the we did the uh, All Systems Go record, and uh, we started playing around the country, and then it just started it started to fall apart. Vinny wasn't getting along with Dana, and and he had a different thing. He fired the manager. There became a new manager in there. It became this kind of a us and them and you know it was just kind of a, a weird you know thing going on uh at that time the nightmare in elm street uh song love kills ended up on the soundtrack for that we did the video for it we continued to, to play and just when it all started to you know happen uh Vinny pissed off uh one of the radio stations and wouldn't walk up a set of stairs and said i don't need this and and uh, the record label's like, you know, I went up and 
you know, worked, you know, talked with people at radio and was, you know, kind of doing my gig, so to speak. And uh, they basically started going towards my thing. They put they put a single out that said the Vinnie Vincent Invasion featuring Mark Slaughter. So the label was already kind of gearing up like, if we stick with this kid, we might have something here. So that was kind of the beginning of it uh, and the end of it. Um, then it was I was signed to what they call a leaving member agreement. When Steve Stevens left Billy Idol, um, Doug Aldrich, or the Buzzard, as he's called, said that everybody who's on the roster who's playing underneath an artist must sign a leaving member agreement to be a part of, of the group. And what that ensured Chrysalis is that whoever left the group that they had underneath there, like Steve Stevens, that meant that if they left, they had to supply four songs for the label to for review. And if, in fact, they liked the songs and liked the artist, they would pick up the artist under the agreement of the main person's deal. Okay. So in essence, in essence, they dropped Vinny, picked up his, I picked up the leaving member agreement, which was his deal, and that's what started Slaughter. Now, how cool is it, though, that, you know, the band's named after you? I mean, it's like, you know, that's such, that's like cool, and I'm sure other people didn't think that was your, the real name, like they just thought it was like Slaughter. I mean, how, how do people re react to the band's name? Well, I mean, I think that people, the, the initial side of it is because of what, you know, that the, the word represents is usually like, oh, my gosh, you know, you know, it's 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 a shock thing. But inevitably, I think it, it, it became, you know, we were writing songs. We were writing things that fit on radio with a hard edge name. And I think that together it actually had its credibility but at the same time, we were able to, you know, push songs because, you know, inevitably what what wins at the end of the day are the songs that continue to be played throughout, you know, throughout the years. And, uh, you know, for instance, Fly the Angels on Spotify alone gets nine million plays a year. Wow. I mean, we don't get paid anything for <laughs> right. it you know, it's, it's as good as Napster at that point. But the point is, is people are obviously wanting to hear that and it's part of people's lives and ultimately that's what you want your music to be as a part of people's lives it becomes more about being part of that soundtrack than it is about a, a, a cash thing you know and certainly that's what we found with writing those songs and, and where it's taken us now when you took over that record contract then you had to come and you had to produce an album Right. So were you guys ready? Did you have material set or what was the process to get that first album done? <laughs> That's a great question. And the, and the answer is a funny answer, which I don't even think I've ever, you know, I've ever even said in, a, in an interview, which is we were having meetings with, with managers to manage the band, meaning whatever the band was going to be and whatever the songs were going to be. We went and had a meeting with Bud Carr. Now, Bud Carr was the manager of Kansas. He had put together, he has a long list of being in the entertainment industry at the Captain and Tennille show. I mean, this guy has been in 
the industry a long time. And we sat him down at Jerry's Deli on Ventura, and you know where that's at. Right. And he said, here's what we're going to do. And we gave him the whole marketing plan. Dana and I gave him the whole marketing plan of how we were going to put this band out. And he, you know, we, we talked about this last time I spoke to Bud. He goes, I've never, from two young guys, to give him a whole marketing plan before there was a note of music even recorded <laughs> was, was, was something he'll never forget. And he said that's part of what really made Slaughter, I think, you know, ultimately besides the music of what makes sense. In other words, the music business, not the music fun. And, of course, we went in, we wrote the songs. The songs were written really quickly. It wasn't, like, really overthought. It was just kind of like we just put our experiences down. That's when the label picked up our option. That's when Bud stepped in. And uh, that's kind of how the, you know, the whole band started to happen. We had the record done, and we said to the, to the company, you don't have your marketing plan together. We're holding the record. And we held the record for six months. It was done mid-89, but we held it till 90 so that they could get their marketing together. How does a record company respond to that? I mean, you know, people don't do that. You know, it's the old story you hear. People are dying to get a record out. And then you have it, and because you guys were smart enough to sit there and say, we're not going to, you know, we don't want to fall between the cracks. How does a record executive react to you guys and your management? Does he think you guys are brazen or did you did they give you respect and go man these guys have some balls on them well i think that they thought you know first of all we also told the label meaning dana and i told the label at the very beginning that if you don't let us produce this record and be our own a and r on this record then just drop us we wanted to have complete freedom on to make our art the way we wanted to make our art and you know chrysalis chrysalis was a the largest independent record label that was out there. In other words, they were they were a major, but they're independent at the same side. And I think that's why it worked for us is because they gave us the freedom to do that, and gave us the freedom to make the record that we thought would work in in the in the marketplace, so to speak. And uh, you know, they were they knew we that we knew what we were doing and. And uh, it was a it was a great experience, you know. I look back on that and I go, man, how cool was that that we had that? And we're the only band from our genre that, through our whole career, have written and produced our own records all the way through, and still perform them to this day. Now, when you came out with that first record and you sit in there, you know, as I said, it has to get results because first of all, you guys probably knew because you had the marketing plan and you were a step ahead. But what was there pressure on you in any mind, any time in your mind, did you go, man, if this doesn't do well, I look like a jerk and it's going to be hard to get the trust back to the record label? Right. Well, I think that they, they knew the songs. We had other record labels that were kind of, how should I put it, courting us underneath the, the, underneath if they said if you can get off that label we'll take the record and we'll do it right so i think we knew what we had it was just that we just drew the line we said this is what we're going to do and this is this is how we're going to do it um and again you know looking back on it i think that we had the the 
I think that we had the, uh, I should say, the confidence in the songs and the confidence in the recordings that we just thought, I, we know we have something here. And we just stuck by that. I mean, it's just following your gut. Now, the debut album, I mean, you have three, you have three top 100 songs. What does that do to your touring status? What does the now? What does the label do when it's it's hot? You have three songs that people know. It's there's videos back then. It's the age of video. What do you do? As do they start sending you to the video? Well, we did our first video, and it's funny because I said, you know, we need a we need somebody who understands Las Vegas and understands you know Hollywood in the same that the nightlife and the glamour and the, the, you know, all that that goes with it. And we looked at all these different reels of directors. And, and then I said to Bud, I said, none of these guys are getting it. Why don't we get somebody who does beer commercials or something like that? that <laughs> really has, has that eye and da, 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 and understands the night and the, the sexiness and da, 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 da. So Bud, you know, again, he, you know, looked around. And he goes, "I found this director, this young director, who's really good, and we should give him a shot." And we did. He did the video and uh, won awards for that video, um, which is up all night. And that was Michael Bay. Oh wow! So Michael Bay directed your first, your Correct. first music video. Now, did you think? I mean, he would become that Michael Bay. I mean, he's giant. No, no. I mean, none of us really, you know, again, you don't think about what you're doing at the time. You're just kind of going, wow, this is really cool. And, and you know, you know, the, the chicks in the video were hot. And, you know, I mean, it's a different mindset. You don't think that way, you know. Uh, that's kind of where our mindset was. We were just kind of like, wow, this is really cool. And our very first show that we did, you know, first Eric Carr actually turned Gene and Paul onto it, and then they, you know, asked for us on the tour. Um, but our very first show that the band ever played was with Kiss at Lubbock Arena in Lubbock, Texas. And when we played that show, we came off the stage, and understand, we didn't play clubs, we didn't do all that other stuff. We did that with our local bands, you know, away from the band, but Slaughter itself never did that. And we played our first show in the arena, came off the stage, went into our dressing room, and John Sykes and Joe Keener, which are the label heads of Chrysalis Records, were standing there with a gold record waiting for us. So we had our first show and had a gold record the same day. How do you handle that? I mean, just your the mental capacity. I mean, that's like, you know, you talk about having a good day. You open for a kiss. Well, you just say, you know, at that point, you just say, you know what? This is fucking awesome. <laughs> That's kind of where we were. It was, it was just simply that, and we were just like, you know, and we, I really, I think that the key was with the band is we really weren't taking this as, we're going to go kick ass, and, you know, we're going to kill all the other bands. We just laughed and had a great time at what we did. We brought bands into the backstage area. We were, you know, we just really, we became a, a a, a band that really embraced the fans. And I think we learned, Dana and I learned that with the Vinnie Vincent invasion. You don't just walk by people. You spend the time. You you, know, you engage and you be a part of their lives and talk to them a little bit and kind of hang and learn and see and 
it was a great experience. And we brought all these fans backstage and Gene's like, there's 400 people back here that shouldn't be here. And, you know, we're, and it was, it was kind of funny when you think about it, but that's how we did it. And I think that's how we built the fan base. And that's how we became a part of a lot of people's lives is because we, as we were having these great experiences, we're telling everybody, hey, man, come on back and join us. It's going to be a big party, and, and this is going to be great. And we really did have that type of of, uh, of thing going on with the band. Well, I think that sort of endears the fans to you. It totally does. So that, you know, they sit there and go, wow, these guys are kicking ass, but they're not jerks. And I think that's so important because you hear people are, you know, jerks or... And then you sit there and go, oh, I don't want to see that guy's movie or that buy the album because he's a jerk. But with you, you were all nice guys and they were digging it. Well, and I think it's the other part of it is is it's genuine. It's not like put on. It's not like, hey, if we do this, we can. You know, it's we really enjoyed that. We enjoy, you know, you're either a people person or you're not. And and uh, we enjoyed the whole side of it. Hey, man, come on over to our. Uh, restaurant afterwards we're gonna get together and we're gonna do the, you know that was one of the things that we were like man that's cool let's go what do you say you know we'll just stop the bus and we'll go over there and 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 that's kind of where the band was we were just kind of the guys next door who did good and i think that's if there's ever an image of that band i think that's part of it we were just we weren't putting it on we were just out there enjoying it and 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 embracing the great times along with everybody else, you know? Now, when you had to bring out your second album, were you worried about following it up because the first one did so well and you had three top 100 songs? I mean, it must be, you know, everyone worries about the sophomore slump, but I, do you think the reason it did really well was, one, it was a great album, but do you think it was also because you had that connection with your fans? I think it was. Uh, I think it was obviously the fans first and foremost on anything with the band and its success. From the very beginning, it was it was the the people. And again, fan is is, is a is a hard word. It's, it's you know it's it's those who enjoy the music and want to be a part of the experience. And we tried to make that experience you know available for everybody through it all. Um, it, it was. When we did the record, The Wildlife, it was one of those things that I think we made a harder record. At that point in time, we had toured with, you know, we toured with uh, Kiss for over a year. We toured with Poison. And we really wanted to have a little bit more uh, band, I think, sound. Because we, when we did the first record, it was the ideas of the songs and putting those songs into a band as opposed to, meaning as writers and producers, now we have played over a year and a half on the road. And I think there's a certain synergy that goes on when everybody plays together. And I think that's what we tried to bring into that record, and uh, along with the songs. And the songs connected. Um, you know, I think the record, you know, the industry itself was changing, the record labels was changing, and... Uh, you know, that's, that was the hard part of that time, was that the record labels were just kind of like, well, you know, we're going to do this song and that song, and then we're going to move on to the next record. They weren't, they weren't building like we were building on the first record. Now, after the, after the second album, you, there was a, a whole 
took a little while to come up with the third album, and then Chrysalis dropped you and some other acts. Now, how did that, what went through your mind then? Because up to then, you, you guys, you had pl- had a pretty sweet road. I mean, as you said, your well, first gig. It, yeah, it was different. It was different, and the, the big part of that is, in, in my opinion, was there's several aspects to the changing. Again, the music industry, and as all industries, even in food and beverage, change pretty much on a, on a decade basis. That's just how it goes. Um, we... When we did the wildlife, we went and toured with Ozzy Osbourne. We toured with Damn Yankees. We came back and said, "Okay, let's start up on the next record." We finished the record, Fear No Evil, and the label itself that we knew, Chris Wright, which is the Chris and Chrysalis, was no longer involved in the record label. Um, so you lost the biggest visionary of that independent as i said the largest independent record and it was swallowed by emi and emi had no basically they had no uh how should i put it loyalty to the artist or to the employees of the company they were just kind of like it's just you know it's just meat you know and i just you know it was one of those things that that uh we got to the end, the record was done, we looked at them, they looked at us, and we said, we really don't want to be here, and they said, well, we really don't want you, and then we said, we want our record, and they said, you know, well, you're going to have to pay, and, you know, inevitably, we went with CMC, we worked it out, and we went away from the label, and subsequently, a few years later, EMI, as we knew it, is defunct and only a Christian label, I mean, they're not even a regular label anymore. It's crazy. I mean, it's you think about I mean, it's, it. It is crazy. I mean, the label's gone. I mean, it's just gone. So now, what what direction is your music going in at this time? And when do you sit there? When do you start to decide to start doing solo stuff? How did ever? How did that all unwind? Well, I think that the solo stuff was kind of one of those things that I was writing here. You know, here I am in Tennessee. I'm I'm still a writer. I'm still a an, an artist making songs and doing what I do and. <clears throat> you know, you, you write songs and you you put them out there. You get it, try to get it into television or film or you know whatever it is. You just consistently make art. Well, what happened with that is 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 uh, you know my guys were out playing with Vince Neil, which is you know lead singer of Motley Crue. They're out doing shows with him, and I just thought, you know what, man, I'm just going to make a record and just throw it out there. I'll do it on my own label and just see what happens with it. You know, because it's 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 about the art and it's about putting it out there to see, you know, because it's music, it's not a money grab. It's just going out there and putting your music out. Well, you know, Reflections in the Rearview Mirror did well. And uh, as I started up on the next record, which is halfway there, um, you know, the conversation started with Tom... Um, over at the label, as well as, you know, David Ellison. And we just kind of said, well, let's do this together. Maybe United, we can make a little bit more noise. And and uh, ultimately, that's what we did. We, you know, I, I joined uh, up on their label, and, and uh, so far we've had some pretty good success with it. Now, how is it different than a Slaughter album, and how has your writing developed since you were that... You know, that first one, Metal in the Mouth, or whatever the song it was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I just, you know, it's it's uh, it's changed in this side that, that 
again, I can wear all hats. Um, and uh, as a producer, writer, performer, player, you know, it, it's like all the way through, it's, it's one of those things you kind of go, man, how did I get here? And it's because of all the years of the wear and tear of erosion, this is what, what I've become. And, uh, um, you know, in that side of it, I, I, I'm really pleased that I'm able to, to do all this myself, you know? Um, and, uh, again, it's different with, and when you're doing it with a record, for instance, when I'm doing a slaughter record, I'll turn to Dana and I'll go, well, what do you think of that? I'll go, well, I think this, well, you know, when you're doing it, making a record yourself, you go, well, Mark, what do you think? <laughs> you know, you got to start questioning yourself and stepping outside yourself. And I think that there is a um, maturity that happens in that. And I think that there's also an honesty that you have to be honest of a real performance or real song or, or real take. Um, and that's what I think I've learned out of that is to, to assess things quickly and to do it on my own. Now, when you're a slaughter, you know, there is some tragedy, the fact that the band and stuff like that. How does a band, do you bounce back from that? Because when someone dies in your group, you know, you guys are a team. I always say, you know, the trust in a band must be so amazing because whether there's four or five or three, you really depend on each other. You know, you always think the bassist and the drum is like the backbone. And then the lead singer and the guitarist have their, you know, they have all their own functions. But how does it, how do you come back from that and when something like that happens and you know you were a popular band it wasn't like you were a band playing garages i mean you're a popular band how do you rebound from that and 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 did it take the band a while to really sit there and feel good about themselves again well i think the hardest part you know the thing that sticks in my mind is when dana and bloss and myself were standing in front of tim's grave and Bloss said, this is the last time we'll all be together. And I was just, you know, that was like, wow. You know, that, that kind of hit me. I mean, you know, not that Tim's death didn't hit me, but I think that was the realization of, like, things are going to change here. And, you know, again, life changes. I mean, we lose family i mean at this point we've all lost family we've all lost friends along the way we've all gone through that i mean there's a song on my record called not here it's about you know when i lost my mom you know we have we we have these wonderful events of 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 beauty and and things and then we have loss and i think that if we you know, not, not to get into a Buddhist side of it or, you know, Christian or whatever, however you want to look at it, but, you know, in all that, um, we come out a better person and a stronger person if we look inner enough to find that. And I think that's really where, where it went with Tim. I mean, it was, it was really, really a hard time to go through. And when we had Jeff Blando step in, the, the guitar player, he was our sound man at the time. And I think it was more about the brotherhood of things, of knowing that it would still, you know, Tim loved Blando's playing. And it was more about the brotherhood and keeping that going more than it was 
you know, hey, we could call George Lynch up or call this guy up or, you know, it was, it, it's, it became a more of a, I think it was a more of a human thing than it was, we're going to do this because people will really like that. Okay. I because it is a marriage, you know, it is a marriage and it is that connection of those players. Right. Now, I got to ask you, when the band was together, and I always, I've been, I've been having a lot of, uh, you know, bands, you know, metal bands that had huge success. What, I want to hear some stories about when you guys went to Japan and what do you think the fascination with, with the Japanese culture and, you know, your genre of music is? Because everyone says the fans are just nuts. Well, I think that it's really no different, you know, in Japan than it is in, um, than it is in Mexico or wherever. I mean, people are very, music is a very big part of all of our lives. Um, and, you know, it is a different thing to go to a uh, culture where people do not speak, you know, the same language and they're singing every lyric to you. <laughs> you know, that's, I think that's one of the things you go, man, these people don't, they don't know what to say, but they know every word and they know every, nuance of these records probably better than we do um that's that's amazing to me well i've heard just the fans are like when they say when you go to japan like people would just like find you like you know and this is before the internet oh yeah so, so they would just sit there and be like outside with gifts and stuff and and i think uh, brian Forsyth well, said from from it, kick said that they were dressed like him it was like weird well what it is 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 uh um it's. I think that you know the fans in Japan have a. It's a uh, respect. It's like thank you for your music. Here's a small gift token of of thanks. So um, that's where it is with with the Japanese fans. That's what they do. That's the way they're showing their affection and love. And you know, and you leave it. It's crazy. You leave a train station and you wave goodbye to everybody and you go to the next town you know go on a speed train and then you get to the next place and there's the same people at your hotel that you just left in the last town i mean it's just it's it's just these people really love the music and i think again it becomes a major part of their lives to those who really allow it to be in no different than ours i mean you know if i asked you you know what was a you know your favorite song when you're a kid that takes you back you know it's, it's that Hourglass it takes you back to when and where and and your your life and you those songs become very um, personal to you because it's a part of your life and that's kind of no different than you know a Beatles song or something that reminds me of when I was you know five years old riding my bike with you know my AM radio duct tape to my you know to my handlebars. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of how it was, man. You know, it's a part of your life. Now, what, what made you move to Nashville? How did, when, and how long ago was that? I moved here 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, it was, Vegas was not the small green acres with lights that I used to know when I was a kid. And I wanted to raise my kids around where, you know, there's, uh, how should I put it, that there's a, a sense of community, a sense of 
her family, and uh, and it was different. It wasn't based off casinos and and uh, you know strippers' butts, which you know all have their place, but certainly not in the value of a family. Um, that is, I wanted to have a really good upbringing for my kids, and I moved out here, and it's the music capital. You know, we're we're music city. That's what happens here. People, the best songwriters in the world are here, and I think it's helped my game as a songwriter. As I've written with some of the top songwriters here in in Nashville, I've I've learned some of those skills and some of those you know ways of of making songs better. And I think it's you know certainly heard on the halfway there record. And I wrote half the record, you know, all by myself, and half the record with other writers. Now, were the other writers friends of yours, or was it something that the label said, "Hey, you know, write with them"? Or how do you find someone to write with you? Because one is, as you said, you've written half, and it's like anything, you know, a song you write, especially a solo song, as you said, because you can't turn to a bandmate, is like a baby. You know, it's like it's like your child, and you want it to go well was it hard for you to write with someone else when it was your music for your solo um i you know as far as writing i, I think that it becomes personal of people who understand you and, and your vision and where you want to go um you know the writers that i wrote with on this record were people who understood what i wanted where i wanted to go with the songs that were written and uh um, you know, that's, that's the key with it is just, you know, people who you write songs with and you go, man, that really, that, that says what I want to be said. And again, as an artist, you're finding your voice, you're finding, you know, it's different than just writing a song and, and I write songs with people, but you know, not all of them are going to wind up on my record. It's, it's ones that actually say what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling or what, I think represents me as an artist that I can make my own. Now, when you're writing for your, your album for uh, Halfway There, how many songs did you write and what was your weeding out process of them? I mean, you figure, you know, as you said, you constantly write, you're writing with people, you have a big abundance. And how do you choose what songs you think will stay on it? Um, as far as, I think that for me, when I was when I was writing the record, there were extra songs that I wrote and actually even recorded, but some of those songs wouldn't fit stylistically for the body of ultimately what I wanted to be an album. In other words, side A, side B. And also, the other thing that people don't think of when you're dealing with vinyl, because this is vinyl. The vinyl will be done here, I guess, here in another week, but was the time that you have on each record. You can't exceed 22 minutes per side. Oh, really? Or else, yeah, it, or else the needle will not go in the grooves properly. So then all of a sudden I'm going, well, wait a second. I need to cut this song. I need to get rid of this song and put this song over here. And that's really, I think, the biggest part of the weeding out process for me was what side A would have and what side B would have. And it really was thought of as an album, and it really was thought of in that mindset, because, again, Slaughter, when we were with Chrysalis, was the first time that they were not going to put out an album. 
So the slaughter record, meaning a vinyl, is very hard to come by. The only ones you'll find are the ones from, from Europe and Germany or Germany, the UK, or the record clubs. But the record clubs, even the you can tell by the, the front of it that because the artwork wasn't made for that size, the, the record cover's blurry. Okay. So, I mean, it's kind of funny, but that's how it all went down. I mean, we, we weren't, it was never released on vinyl. So that's what I really wanted to do is make an album. A vinyl, long playing, kick ass, sounds better on vinyl, audio file record. And, and uh, we've listened to it. It was mastered separately from what it is for MP3s. You know, I mean, it was really done right that way. Now, if it wasn't for the time and constraints, would you have changed up the order of certain songs or do you think it would be the same? Oh, it, I think I, it would have been different. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is I was trying to fit it on vinyl. So that meant that, you know, 18 minutes on one side or 19 on the other. In other words, you, you try to fit it to where it it winds up being in that sweet spot. And so, yeah, it was, it was made for vinyl. That's ultimately what led the order of these songs and how it was done. Now, is Hey You, is that the first single, or how did, you know, do you, I think you have a video on your website for that. Um, how did you pick that song? Um, it was the first song that, you know, I noticed when I played that song for people, that was the first thing that people went, oh my God, this is like, you know, almost like the record after Wildlife. I mean, people really identified the Slaughter sound with that. So I didn't really, I didn't run from it. I embraced it. Um, and, uh, I think that's why I, I, we, we pushed that song first and foremost is because it's not, it's not running from where I came from, even though it's updated. So it's just kind of like that next step. Now, how have videos changed over the year? Cause they're probably so much more cheaper now and, and they don't, they don't have the, the viewing as much as it used to. MTV used to be on all the time. How has how has videos changed in your eyes? Well, MTV, which is music television, no longer is music television. Right. Foremost, they don't play videos. Um, the videos that are being played are now on YouTube. It's not nothing about MTV anymore. And again, it's like I, I really haven't. To be honest with you, it's not something that I've really focused on though a lot of artists have of continuing to make videos and put them on YouTube and, you know, try to get the views and try to get, you know, it's going to be hard to, to compete with the cute puppies and kittens that are up there that are, you know, pulling in millions of views. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you're, it, it's, there's this overload of information that it comes a point where you go, this is what I do. This is what it is. If you dig it, great. Um, I'm not going to overchase doing a video for a bunch of songs and really chasing that rainbow because it's it's really not the art form or what the song really is to me. It's more about just the songs. Now, if somebody wants to make a video on this stuff, they can certainly 
use that and use the music and that's all good now slaughter the band has some you know they're, you're playing some festivals this summer but i saw on your website yeah. which uh people it's markslaughter.com and it's a very very nice website it's not crappy it looks great it's got nice nice visuals you're going to be playing a solo show in june right. in new york now what's going through your mind before you do that solo show and will you play slaughter songs too um, I'm going to play slaughter songs and, uh, a lot of the new stuff. I mean, uh, I'm not going to overload it with, with, uh, with slaughter material. You know, I think I'll play, you know, some of the hits, but I'm not, I'm really wanting to do something different and kind of step outside the, the typical side of what people would expect from, from me as an artist. So that's the key with, with all the solo dates that I'll be doing this year is to really try to do something that's not typical, not what people would expect for the band to do. Now, when you play these solo dotes, solo dates, do you sit there, will you change up the playlist and seeing what the, how the audience is feeding? Or will you sit there and say, you know, first, you know, one of these shows, well, New York, the show went well, but the next, the song didn't hit as well. I mean, how will you sit there and put your actual set list together? Um... I think the set list is to the the energy. I think it's of of what we're trying to achieve as as you know as playing live is trying to keep that energy up and to a point where people go, man, that kicked ass, or you know, the, you know, again for an acoustic side, people when they hear something that's acoustically driven, it's down, it's it's a little bit more, you know, chill. And uh, that is, you know, again, what you do with it if you're doing acoustic stuff. Well, this is really kind of plugged in and kick ass and, you know, kick ass and take names and, and a little bit of remember this, remember that, and, you know, leave them with a smile. Now, with these big festivals, I know, uh, what was Rocklahoma was just a few weeks ago? Right. Now, I, I asked someone else this. What's it like as a musician when you're used to, you know, years ago you would see actual lighters going up. What's it like for a musician now when you sit there and you see cell phones with the fake lighter? Is it, does it take a little of nostalgia out, nostalgia out for you? Um, in some ways it does. Um, but uh, the nice part of it is nobody's going to burn the house down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is, it is different. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, there there were times when there was lighters in the air, like when Stevie Ray Bond passed away. I dedicated Fly the Angels to him out at Alpine Valley, and it was like 40,000 people with lighters in the air. I'll never forget the amount of lighters and that, that feeling at that point, meaning the respect for Stevie, the respect for rock and roll, the respect for... Just you know, it was just a moment that I'll never forget. And uh, you know, as far as in lighters and in, as far as like phones and that side of it, I don't think I really have gotten that type of you know chill, so to speak. Um, and and again, I think it's also uh, you know, again, it was the passing of, of Stevie. You know, now you've had a long career. You've played with great people. What was the most 
the the person that came up on stage and gigged with you guys, you got the gig with that really you went, wow, this is what it's all about. Of of playing shows with those yeah, people? Like, like, did you, who, who, were you, who have you been on stage with that you said, wow, this is just amazing? Um, you know, look, it's it's all amazing to me. From my very first, you know, look, I was an Alice Cooper fan. I was an Iron Maiden fan. I mean, music is what I'm a fan of. And those songs that strike a chord in my musical environment or my upbringing or what I'm a fan of because that is my defining sound and, and, and where I was at that time. That's with the hourglass. When I see the hourglass, whenever you hear that song, you know, Mama, I'm Coming Home by Ozzy Osbourne, that takes me right to that tour. We were on that tour when that song was hitting. And it was a big hit, and, you know, it, it was one of those things that, you know, I was there. It was pretty cool. It is funny. But again, when, part of my life. It's funny when you think about old songs. I mean, and just like I had uh, Steve Lynch on last week, and they opened for Van Halen at the Spectrum in Philadelphia in 1984 and I was at that concert and I still remember it. I'm like wow and so years later I'm talking to the guy who I saw open for Van Halen that's what's crazy about right. music you're right you sit there and go holy crap I was at that concert right right which is where I guarantee Tim Kelly was at the same time because he lived in he's from the Jersey area there from Trenton New Jersey okay so you know well it was great talking to you so now what's your website is markslaughter.com and give all your Give all your info. Your your tweet. I see you. You get out there and you tweet. Or what's your Twitter handle? It's uh, Mark Slaughter thirty three, and it's uh, Mark Slaughter official on uh, on Instagram, and uh, you know same thing with uh, Facebook. It's the official page, and uh, you know look, it's 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 an interesting little dynamic where things are. MarkSlaughter.com, SlaughterUSA.com. It's a it's an interesting dynamic because we're we're trying to find you know the artists that we were a part of and loved at that time you know no different than you know for the Beatles or any of the other stuff but it's really one of those things of the music finds you I mean here we are Sergeant Pepper's re released you know exactly. remastered done I mean it's just if that's a part of your life and a part of what you what you dig and who you are, then you know, get in it, man. Go, go purchase a record. Go be a part of of what you know you love. Uh, my my friend Eddie Trunk says that. You know, people say, well, "Whatever happened to such and such?" Well, man, if you just Google it, it's all right. right. <laughs> you find out the information right in front of you. Just don't be lazy and just wonder. You know, go find it and go follow the bands. And go find out what Steve Lynch is doing with Autograph. Man, they're still out there playing. He still plays just as great as he did back in the day. Right. It's just, you know, it's just, there's, it's a love of the music, a love of that time, and a love of what those songs have done for all of us. And again, it's not just my music, it's all music. And that's what this is about to me right now, is that it's the love of the music and the discussion of that, because... Really, that's what put us all in this. That's what, you know, as you as a young kid at the Spectrum and, and, and going to shows, to me, like the same thing at the Aladdin Theater for Performing Arts, of, of seeing all those same bands and just going, man, that's awesome. That's what 
we loved, and that's why we still do what we do. It's exactly. not because it's a money gig, it's because of the love of it. Exactly. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for coming on. This was great. So people follow Mark Slaughter. Look up. As he said, Google this stuff. Listen to it. Go buy Go buy his album. That's right, an album. Vinyl's coming back. Buy his album. And follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 615 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Instagram is coopertalk1, where you'll see a lot of food pictures, because it was five years ago when I had that health problem. When I got out of the hospital, I wrote a cookbook, so you can buy that at stopthesalt.com. You can see the pictures of the food on Instagram, Uh, stopthesalt.com. It's 120 recipes, uh, low sodium, no pictures to intimidate you. You can get it at Amazon, but if you go to stopthesalt.com, I'll sign it for you, and I'll make more money. So people, check out Mark's new album, I love to say I can say album. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.